I had earlier spoken uh, via your platform on Modinomics a couple of years ago. Obviously, it was in person. This is virtual. Um, and thank you to Aparna on your side for helping organizing all of this. Um, so Rajiv and I are both extremely indebted for this platform. Um, I'll talk to you. The way we'll do is the book has five chapters. So I'll just kind of introduce the book. Um, Rajiv will speak through chapters one, three, and five. I'll speak through chapters two and four. Um, and then we'll both kind of conclude together. And um, after that, we might have time for questions, as Rahul says. Um, and the book, I'll just kind of go through the introduction first. And the names of the chapters I'll mention towards the end. And it will be self-explanatory as we go along as well. Uh, the, the format would be, we'll speak extempore for some bit. We'll also read a bit. And then we'll explain those extracts. And we'll keep it relatively uh, free-flowing. Um, in 2013, um, 2013 is when we first started writing about the idea of India uh, title. It was, uh, I'll just read out from the book itself. The genesis of the book is traceable to a debate on political philosophy. Speaking to New York Times, he had observed that Modi's politics is against the idea of India. The idea of India has a clear place for minorities as minorities, not minorities simply as individuals. So responding to this, we had written an op-ed in Mint called Let Us Debate the Idea of India. And you know that led to more debates in Indian Express. We were fortunate to have um, Nirmala Sitaraman, who's right now the Honorable Finance Minister, join on our side. Uh, people like Javed Anand joined on the side of Professor Ashtosh Varshni. Uh, many other people commented on it uh, through 2014. And uh, that, was, that was an interesting kind of debate which kind of showed us the fault lines of Indian philosophy of people who say they are for individual rights actually get really worried when actually people start talking about individual rights. Um, so just on that, again, since we are introducing the book and you're not in the first chapter, I'd like to quickly read a note on labels. So in India, we routinely use terms just right and left in our political discourse. That's understandable. I and Rajiv, Rajiv and I also do it. But the meaning ascribed to these terms in Western democracies is hardly transferable to India. And in fact, I would argue now they're not even applicable to the West as much to that extent. In the West, nonetheless, they have the connotations of conservative and progressive, that is right and left, especially on social issues. And on economic issues, they generally have the connotation of more liberal markets on the right, more redistribution on the left. In India, obviously, the label is primarily associated, the right label is associated to the party BJP, Bharati Janta Party, rooted in the Sangh Parivar or Hindutva politics. Just as the right is used loosely for the BJP, the left is used loosely for the Congress or actual leftist parties, center-left regional parties. And often the overarching term for that is Nehruvian. And we also discussed in the book how that may not be the same as Nehru's politics himself, but Nehruvian is a term that is often used. But we say that there are many shades of Hindutva, just like there are many shades of Zionism in Israel or Christian Democrats or Islamism or Confucianism. In fact, the term Hindutva, even though it was not invented by Savarkar, was popularized by Savarkar. And he actually wanted to tame the centrifugal forces of region and language and the stratifying forces of caste with that of a unifying identity of Hindutva. Um, the reason why that is important is in this process, while he obviously other to some extent Islam and Christianity, the two proselytizing monotheistic global faiths and together the global majority. But given India's medieval as well as modern colonial history, as well as a subsequent religion-based partition of the Indian subcontinent, it cannot be said that there was no truth whatsoever in his conceptualization. Moreover, Savarkar was explicit that all Indian citizens, irrespective of religion, were to be treated equally by the state. This facet of history is not well known uh, about Savarkar on all sides of the spectrum. 
hence the name hence the subtitle of the books civilizational rights uh, individual rights in a civilizational state now you know let's understand our terms and terms civilization nation state let's go to nation first uh, in 1882 this french philosopher person called ernest renan said in his talk what is a nation he said that race language community religion geography military they are not enough by themselves to create the basis of a nation he said that the nation is a soul it is a spiritual principle basically he was saying that a nation is a nation if it thinks it's a nation two nation two things which properly uh, speaking are really one and the same one is the past you need to have a sense of a common past you need to agree on the present even if you disagree on specific policies and you need to have a common vision about the future he said man does not improvise the nation like the individual is the outcome of a long past of efforts sacrifices and devotions that sense of shared past is extremely important but obviously a civilization is a broader entity than a nation and we'll come to this in chapter 2 as well um civilization can be considered to be the broadest section of humanity short of all of humanity itself right i mean if you go by the indian civilizations one out of six in human beings it is so unique and distinct enough that it can be called a civilization and there is no meta grouping above india which would qualify it as a civilization whereas you cannot say that about say the france united states the france united states can be classified as quote unquote west and therefore the nation does not coincide with the civilization in the case of the france united states it does in the case of india more or less um now let's come to the word dharma you know, the sanskrit word dharma which we think is the best word to encapsulate the word civilization uh, as far as india goes and it is one of those non translatables in english right um and as a great sanskrit scholar uh, pandurang vaman kane he opined dharma is one of those words that can that defy all attempts at the exact rendering in english or any other tongue um in his history of dharma shastra he wrote the writers on dharma shastra meant by dharma not a creed not a religion but a mode of life or a code of conduct which regulated a person's work and activities as a member of society and as an individual and was intended to bring about the gradual development of a person to enable him to reach what was deemed to be the goal of human existence but let me continue the final section of this opening segment which will talk about the book's title cover and outline and that will uh, lay the groundwork for what rajiv is about to do in chapter 1 and then we'll alternate so when the constituent committee finished the task of drafting the republic of india's constitution the leadership asked an artist called nandlal bose to illustrate the constitution Bose was a protege of Abindranath Tagore from the family of Rabindranath Tagore and uh, Abindranath Tagore was a founder of the Bengal School of Art and he was the first person to draw or at least the most famously draw Bharat Mata in 1905 the choice of Bose uh, who was affiliated with Tagore to lead the project says a lot and this was the as you can see in the book this is a photo of Ram Lakshman and Sita and this 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 painting or art depict is actually from the original copy of the indian constitution from the fundamental rights section and uh, this illustration shows a lot right without without speaking in words it shows a lot um the title of the first chapter of this book which rajiv will speak about in couple of minutes is india that is bharat that is also taken from article 11 of the constitution of india a renowned uh, jurist nani palkiwala had written in 1974 freedom cannot be inherited in the blood stream each generation must have to fight for it it can die surely though not as swiftly in a democracy as well 
as it does in a totalitarian state. So we have to fight. What is the, what is the surest guarantee of freedom that we are talking about in this book? We say that a civilizational republic, a democratic polity based on the rule of law, which in turn is rooted in the millennia old pluralistic ethos of India, which comes naturally to India. We do not have to kind of uh, explain to our kids what pluralism is. It is literally in their, the way they grow up, the way they see things all around them. That is the surest guarantee of securing the freedom that Palkiwala spoke about. India is the only major civilizational republic in the world. China can be called a civilizational state, but it is clearly not a republic. So chapter one, the, now what are the five chapters? Chapter one, which Raji will talk about, will lay the groundwork for the foundational philosophy of the book, which says that India is a civilization, not just a post-colonial entity, not just post-1947. Chapter two, which I will talk about, describes how this civilization is transforming into a nation through the instrumentality of a democratic republic. In chapter three and four, we look at individual rights within this framework. Chapter three, we focus on politics. The name of chapter three is saving secularism from the secularists. Chapter four is on economics. We say profit is not a dirty word. And finally, in chapter five, before we conclude, we further explore why this civilization that is now a nation or becoming a nation needs a strong, honest, but limited state. Such a state can harness the size of India for many benefits, economies of scale, while minimizing the inefficiencies inherent in gigantism by focusing on federalism markets and an explicit doctrine that recognizes the importance of both diversity as well as unity. So chapter one is India, that is Bharat. Uh, Rajiv, over to you. So uh, as Harsh mentioned, chapter one is on how uh, India is a civilization and not just a post-colonial entity. So the, uh, the, I think the great flaw that has pervaded our kind of public discourse is that this idea being pushed that somehow India, that is Bharat, uh, was created in 1947 uh, by certain individuals. Uh, well, I'm uh, sure and as, as you read the book, you will discover that even those individuals didn't think that. Uh, whether it was Nehru, Gandhi, Patel, Ambedkar, none of them really thought that we are the ones who are creating a country. They saw themselves as inheritors of a very long and very old civilization. And uh, frankly, the uh, ideological inheritors, the successors of those individuals, uh, making such claims about these iconic leaders would have surprised those leaders themselves. So uh, let me let me start by uh, reading a few lines from this chapter where we go into uh, why India is a civilization and what it means to be a civilization that is transforming into a nation. So uh, we, we say in the chapter, skepticism is an indispensable foundation of what is called science. The fundamental premise of scientific inquiry is that an unknown truth can be learned through iterative experimentation and exploration. A school of thought that is dogmatic cannot profess to be scientific. Similarly, an economic system that imbibes such skepticism cannot, by definition, be centrally planned. For that would require an omniscient, omnipotent body to allocate resources. In this sense, socialism is an, an, an analogous with obscurantist faith, while liberal, liberal capitalism is analogous to scientific religion. Also, skepticism and the intellectual humility that it engenders is required to cultivate genuine tolerance in society, for it allows fellow human beings to accept mutual differences. 
and then from from such skepticism flows social diversity and only if individuals are allowed to syncretically build upon that is add and subtract from traditions and practices without being required to dogmatically treat them as immutable rules can true diversity really emerge so i think this is a defining feature of indian and hindu civilization that nothing is treated in a way that you know that only this is possible and only this is correct uh you know we 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 have many traditions of indic thought which accept even opposites and say you know who knows both may be right and that is best kind of uh, captured in the the hymn of creation the nasadiya sukta of the rigveda uh which very very evocatively says you know even may the, maybe even the gods don't know what is what so so the the fundamental error i think uh, as we say in the book that was made post independence was that india adopted an attitude of uh, a, a position of certitude that kind of chafed against this kind of skeptical tradition that we have in the country and we've had for centuries and millennia uh this in in terms of economics obviously translated into kind of socialism and central planning uh and and uh, those effects are well known what that resulted in all kinds of stagnation poverty which we will discuss later in this talk today uh and the second aspect that uh, uh was was kind of a big flaw uh imposed upon different intellectuals was that indian democracy was somehow invented in 1947 uh the 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 truth actually is that india has very very old uh culture of democracy and we have deep roots of democracy in fact the french uh, political philosopher tocqueville had recorded recorded in his writings of how india had this democratic culture uh even like centuries before uh when he came to india before centuries before independence so so reconciling that social diversity in a uh democratic context this so the social diversity that comes from skepticism reconciling that in a democratic context requires that ind- individuals should be at the center and uh, they should be the building units of all state policy uh which is what you know the subtitle of the book it is individual rights in a civilizational state uh finally harsh spoke also about dharma uh dharma is one of those like he said the words where you know it's not perfect, perfectly translatable uh uh but as uh, shri orbindo had said as as goes uh uh, uh sanatan dharm so does bharat so orbindo had said in a very famous speech that he made uh in 1909 that uh, for bharat to survive for india to survive sanatan dharm has to prosper in closing i will just uh, quote a passage that we have uh, also talked about in the book from uh, swapan das gupta's uh, acclaimed book awakening bharat mata where he kind of comments on what happened uh, with the congress and with uh, you know which was the natural party of governance in india for so long you know wh- why did they sort of lose out and and he connects it to the civilizational aspect so uh, i quote from the book till the lifetime of indira gandhi at least the congress despite many secular adjustments broadly represented the mainstream of indian nationalism however as it progressively vacated the old ground and simultaneously lost its overwhelming political dominance traditional indian nationalism increasingly came to be identified with forces that had hitherto been on the fringes 
the slow transition of vande matram and bharat mata from being a mainstay of the congress to being identified with the bjp epitomized the shift so i think this passage very beautifully connects you know uh, kind of a high level philosophical point uh, about indian civilization about hindu civilization to kind of the retail level uh, politics that we have observed in the last 25 years in the country on that note harsh over to you for chapter 2 thank you so much rajiv uh, so rajiv just spoke about india that is bharat or india that is uh, civilization and has been for a long time and very very pertinently the name of chapter 2 is from civilization to nation from the civilization to the construction of a nation and uh, a good transition quote we actually st- uh, start with that is uh, dr ambedkar's quote which i think is uh, very 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 uh, accurate but also a bit funny he says indians are of course quarreling and no one can prophesy when will they stop quarreling uh, but granting the fact what does it establish only only that indians are a quarrelsome people it does not destroy the fact that india is a single geographical unit her unity is as ancient as nature within this geographical unit and covering the whole of it there has been a cultural unity since time immemorial this cultural unity has defied political and racial divisions i mean we have also quoted somewhere nehru ji who you know again some somebody you not expected from him he also says something similar and he says despite political and linguistic divisions very similar to dina x uh, sacred geography so you know the civilization being one is something that gandhi nehru ambedkar all understood now that being established how do we how are we transitioning to a nation so we begin with a good anecdote so let us say today it is not uncommon for perhaps 30 year old educated indian woman let us call her meena or neena whatever name you want to give her to have her father's native village in punjab you know as we indians call native village her mother is in uttar pradesh mother's native village uh, she herself having grown up in mumbai or bombay having married someone whose family is from calcutta or kolkata with the couple having met in ahmedabad and currently living in bangalore nor are such examples of relocation intermarriage restricted to regional or caste boundaries they are becoming more common but less common are perhaps across class and religion as vinayak savarkar uh, veer savarkar had said sexual attraction has proved more powerful than all the commands of all the prophets put together um, so what is this identity of this new indian woman the kind of example we spoke about it is not just one she is a human being an indian a woman a professional a wife a daughter perhaps a mother and she can claim to be attached to six or more states she can speak if not fluently four languages and she may even understand understand the most important curse words in a few more languages she has a soft corner for gurudwaras for durga puja for laughing buddhas and for feng shui uh, so this this kind of this is not a that hypothetical an example if we look around in our own lives so you know her identity we say is you know she zones out politics she hates taxes and all those uh, curse words coming back when she has to file for her taxes and meena is above all as you might have also have guessed a hindu depending on the situation she could have another dozen identities india home to a sixth of all humans is a very complex place soon it will have the world's largest population china has slightly more but while china is not as homogeneous as some people think it is definitely not not as heterogeneous or diverse as india is and i think this line was very important in the book even in the us you know the world's third largest country by population if you've gone to new york or boston or in other western cities like london you'll see people of all skin colors right 
all languages. But we say that on closer observation, one finds that diversity in the West is relatively skin deep, not soul deep. You know, S-O-U-L deep. I think that was an interesting point we made. The why? Because a poor Mexican immigrant who causes so much heartburns in some part of America, uh, they do not have a fundamentally different worldview than most Americans. They do not want to change American laws. You know, they are broadly speaking, a bit of racial, linguistic, and most interestingly, gastronomical diversity within the same Western heritage. Um, so, this, so try to understand when people say comparing Mexican illegal immigrants in the US and say Bangladeshi illegal immigrants in India, they're very, very different takes because the Bangladeshi illegal immigrant in India might represent a different civilization the way Mexican illegal immigrants in America does not. And this point needs to be understood. Uh, then we quote Thatcher and uh, Donald Trump and other people saying why the West is one civilization. I'll skip that part. So what is the civilization? We call the Indian civilization a civilization of synthesis. Uh, you know, for example, the, the way we uh, say this is, um, you know, Winston Churchill famously said India is no more a political personality than Europe is. India is a geographical term. It is no more united than the equator. And uh, we say that while the equator flourish is obviously wrong and, you know, this person was clearly racist. He, because of him, many millions of people died in the Bengal famine. But it is true, the hypothesis, it is worth exploring that India is a civilization, but it's still becoming a nation. Uh, because many Indian states do resemble European nations. For example, Punjab and Andhra might be like France and Bulgaria, right? They might have uh, different ethno-linguistic roots, but a common civilizational root. The European Union is the modern secular inheritor of Christendom. Just like India is the manifestation of a united dharmic polity. So, so, so what is the catalyst? Now we finally have one united democratic state which represents all of us. We've never had uh, dharmics. Indians have never had a free state of their own. Um, definitely not in any democratic format in a modern sense. What Rajiv mentioned about uh, pre-existing democratic culture is absolutely correct in the sense of the republics, the Lichavi Republic and you know, the ancient republics, just the way the West talks about Greek democracy. If that is legitimate in a in version of democracy today, then because you know, the Greek states had slaves, uh, very few people could vote. In that sense, obviously, Indians also had democracy in ancient times. But in a modern universal adult franchise time, this united democratic all India state is the first we've had. That is the catalyst, which is converting our civilization into a nation. And I think this is very interesting. Words civilization and culture get confused. And there, there is overlap, no doubt. But I'll tell, we'll try to explain why it is different. For example, North India and Pakistan may share a common culture when it comes to food, or at least some parts of food, movies, music. But all such common commonalities could not prevent the violent rupture of partition. And as Sunil Khilani, who wrote The Idea of India, The Idea of India, uh, he said that partition was the quote-unquote greatest violation of Gandhi's idea of India as a civilizational unity by quote-unquote irrational forces. So, you know, what we say is what Khilani is unable to say because that would cause too much cognitive dissonance is that India and Pakistan or, uh, you know, a predominant set of Muslim-majority areas in the northwest of the Indian subcontinent and perhaps elsewhere they do not represent one civilization. It may not be politically correct to say, but they represent two civilizations. 
indeed the india pakistan border may be the most severe civilizational fault line in the entire world despite the common culture that's where we began of all the modern states in existence today india represents the pinnacle of syncretic polytheism you know we are right now celebrating uh, durga puja in some part of the country dashera somewhere else even for the devi we have different forms right it's syncretic polytheism um whereas pakistan represents the most unrestrained barbaric instincts of proselytizing monotheism so all the shayari and all the kebabs and music cannot paper over this reality and that's the difference between culture and civilization and obviously Sam, you know samuel huntington had famously talked about the clash of civilizations but even if you don't believe in a clash of civilizations you have to at least acknowledge the reality of different civilizations now there is another term of civilization which is not less relevant is not relevant today but maybe in coming times is when we quote naipaul when he talked about the incipient universal civilization um he said that there will be a global humane civilization in time to come but let us see that is not the situation right now yes so by the way this india being a syncretic civilization is something that even uh people like daniel patrick mohian who was a us ambassador to india he said the defining strength of india has been its ability to absorb in fact he says indian civilization the defining strength of that civilization is its ability to absorb synergistically the culture of outsiders thereby conquering the conquerors and it has largely been true i mean it was clearly not true in the case of islamic invaders although even there you can argue to the extent but for example the indo greeks the indo heptalites some people say that some of the rajputs some of the northwestern communities like rajputs and jats gujars it may or may not be true were partially descendants of indo greeks or indo heptalites you know and what happened is they became part of the larger hindu polity and culture um and similarly you know when we we spoke about pandurang kane in the last chapter as well and this is an interesting thing where he goes beyond the definition of dharma into the substance of it he says the reason given for cultivating virtues such as daya and ahimsa is based on the very simple but complex philosophical doctrine of the one the self being present in every individual and it is said in words it is it is best encapsulated in the word tatvam asi uh, he says that is the highest point in indian metaphysics it requires us to consider the goodness or badness that happens to us for other people as well which is known as the golden rule in morality right buddhism also has something similar and in the west also out of the traditional religions there christianity etc you have such metaphysics yes yeah, so there are, there's a concept that we need to understand individual rights and group rights so what india does is india says uh, you know we'll have individual rights for hindus for example uniform civil code whereby daughters by definition get half same property as sons do and there's constant reform and we are all in support of it no bjp uh, leadership has ever said to roll it back in fact they're trying to make it more and more aggressive they recently liberalized abortion uh, except the last trimester they've been pushing for more inheritance rights they've even been talking about uh, making the marriage age for men and women the same again people have different views but there clearly there is no question of retrogression from the point of view of the bjp however when it comes to the for example muslim personal law uh, nehruvians and in this case nehru as well refused to reform it and steven wilkinson Uh, and many other people we call this consortialism it's a tough to pronounce word consortialism is basically when we see groups and not just individuals as legitimate entities for power sharing within a within a politics within a polity and a subset of consortialism is confessionalism 
confessionalism is when that group sharing happens along the lines of religion so for example lebanon is a famous example of confessionalism uh, where historically you've had a shia this and sunni president and a christian maronite uh, some other uh, parliamentary speaker or what have you and but steven wilkinson who actually would probably not agree with so called hindutvavadis says that actually since the mid 1960s as india became more consortial his research shows there has been an increase in hindu muslim rights caste conflict and separatist violence he says and i quote him i argue that there are good reasons to think that consortial policies might even be responsible for the increase in ethnic violence in recent years so it is not just a philosophical point that we are trying to make that at least you know in society i can be a hindu i can be this or that i am simply arguing for the state to see me as an individual citizen as an indian only the state and actually somebody who would disagree with me perhaps politically is saying he agrees with me and he agrees with me and rajiv that this kind of policies by the heruvians led to more identity based violence in india over the last half century and the final part uh, we'll go is to a section that we wrote called kashmir pakistan and kal popper and there is a there is a lot of please buy the book i'm sorry to plug it but there's a lot of good stuff that i have to skip uh, for want of time okay so this kashmir pakistan and karl popper so karl popper wrote in his classic work the open society and its enemies that if we want and i'll just simply quote him he said i do not imply for instance that we should always suppress intolerant philosophies as long as we can counter them by rational argument keep them in check by public opinion suppression would be wrong and unwise but we should claim the right to suppress them if necessary even by force and you know this is this is to some extent we are actually arguing for almost absolute free speech in another part of the book but this is an argument which says we must keep the right in future to suppress them for it may easily turn out that they are not prepared to meet us on the level of rational argument um, they may tell that all argument is wrong for example the way postmodernists say they may say it is deceptive and they say we will fight violently in that case we should claim in the name of tolerance to tolerate to not tolerate the intolerant why is that relevant for example in the case of kashmir let us consider kashmir kashmir is a very small part for valley kashmir valley is 4000 square kilometers out of 222000 square kilometers of kashmir jammu and ladakh yet obviously it is a bone of contention what is the bone of contention basically of shown of all logic pakistan says a muslim majority border region how did it go to india and not pakistan after partition right it's another point that we completely forgot about thar parkar but let's not go into that that is that is a blot on our uh, on, on our humanity but that's been done and we need to correct it later on how should we react should we go by the so called uh, liberal way or maybe not all liberals believe this that you know aap referendum kara do and chhod do jagah ko or should we not because if if we do have a second religion based partition what does it mean for minorities in the rest of the country and this is not just a hypothetical scenario demographic changes in kerala bengal and assam are showing that we are going in that direction and we quote a bunch of numbers um so how should we think i mean we very quickly uh, compare this secessionist demand in kashmir to say in the west please contrast what is happening in sunni muslim kashmir valley with what is happening in catalonia spain scotland in uk or say quebec in canada in the last three cases if there is any secession they will all remain within the west in fact in the first two cases they will remain in the eu they will have free trade agreements 
but whereas in the first case it will end up going to a hostile civilizational unit it will be very different from whereas quebec separating is like within the west a new country is created it's like we creating telangana within the dharmic polity so that is very, very the conceptually not the same even though we use the term nation state uh, and it's very important to look at this point for example northern ireland uh you know northern ireland was historic catholics and ireland the rest of ireland which is which is with the uk is protestants and they may actually merge soon partially because of demographic reasons but partially also because there are no more christian based laws in the lived reality of these people uh if we come to pakistan can we say something similar to that let us for a moment see kashmir as northern ireland pakistan as ireland and india as the uk first partition was never about one to one mapping of religious demographics secondly pakistan unlike the unlike the irish republic is nowhere remotely close to secular liberal enlightenment hindus sikhs shias muslim liberals do they really want to join the islamic republic of pakistan even if they are not in a majority would that be fair thirdly even if pakistan were to go through a secularization process how do we go by self determination they have already sent so many punjabi sunni muslims to gilgit baltistan and we have not changed the demographics here we are now trying to change it and finally quite simply just like we kept a part of punjab and i think we should have kept a part of sindh but we kept bengal it is fine to keep a part of kashmir because it is integral to india's civilizational heritage thousands of years of hindu and buddhist culture um i think i'll just leave it at that and hand over to raji for chapter 3 so chapter 3 of the book uh then delves into uh you know one of the most contentious sort of issues of debate in contemporary indian politics which is you know secularism or secularism as it is practiced in india uh and uh, you know the the as 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 many of us know the whole premise is actually very flawed it has all kinds of problems and the most obvious one is that india even today continues to have a system of religion based personal laws for about 20% of its population so this uh, aspect of uh, having religion based laws uh, has actually a very interesting history uh, back in 1955 uh, jawaharlal nehru when he was a prime minister he had bought he had brought what 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 are today called the hindu code bills uh, to reform the laws reform and modernize the laws concerning personal matters of hindus and when you know he did it only for hindus and not for muslims jb kriplani who was a very renowned gandhian socialist leader he said and i quote i charge you with communalism because you are bringing forward a law about monogamy only for hindu community take it from me that the muslim community is prepared to have it but you are not brave enough to do it so uh, kriplani had been a long uh, colleague of uh, nehru in the congress and these were very strong words by him on the floor of parliament so so why did the you know uh, as he's called liberal and secular nehru do this uh, we may never know even today this issue remains contentious and we find that a lot of secular aligned parties uh, or other uh, self described secular parties and politicians support such religion based laws uh, it is truly baffling so so let me come next to the issue of uh how secularism is practiced in india and uh, i will just read a few lines from the book here where uh, we say 
political parties belonging to the secular fold have openly doled out government welfare on religious grounds one can only bluntly describe this practice as bribery and it has enjoyed the highest judicial endorsement and constitutional protection this bribery euphemistically called minority appeasement in popular parlance saw a dramatic escalation during the sonia gandhi manmohan singh era and that escalation has escaped scrutiny and critical commentary so that era as you all know was from 2004 till 2014 and uh, numerous state governments as well as the union union government of course in that period and even over the last 6 years have continued with this template where public welfare has been given based on religion so our view is that this has made a mockery of the principle of secularism uh and thus we call it the pseudo secularist fraud in the book and the title of this chapter concerning all these issues is secularism or, or the title is saving secularism from secularists so uh, i will not go into the detailed sort of uh, research we have presented where we go region by region government by government uh, state by state and highlight uh, instances where you know even even uh, so called new age leaders like arvind kejriwal in delhi have indulged in this practice so uh, i will i will just quote the great sitaram goel who had written in his book uh, uh, secular democracy and liberal theocracy uh, he uh, goel ji wrote the concept of secularism as known to the modern west is dreaded derided and denounced in the strongest terms by the foundational doctrines of christianity and islam it is therefore intriguing that the most fanatical and fundamentalist adherents of christianity and islam in india that is the christian missionaries and muslim 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 mullahs cry themselves whores in defense of indian secularism so goel had seen this as uh, you know even decades ago and even in 2020 we continue to see these malpractices which often don't see any kind of critical commentary in the mainstream media uh and uh, uh unfortunately they continue to carry on uh being labeled secular and those who oppose this are actually ironically in a very orwellian way called communal so uh it is a great tragedy actually of modern india that this has carried on for so long in the same way uh there is this movement towards uh, rationalism we are told and we know about of these movements that have been going on in maharashtra karnataka and other parts of india where a clique of self described rationalist activists have taken upon themselves to define for other people what is rational what is irrational so so we address some of their positions in the section uh, titled saving rationalists saving rationalism from the rationalists uh and our view is obviously that uh, these activists have no business deciding for other people uh what is rational and irrational uh in a free country uh you know if 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 they think something is superstitious and you know one uh, person or some people want to practice that superstition what whatever they think is superstitious you know the individual has every right to practice that and who are these people to try to legally bar it or place bans in it or even worse criminalize it so 
so these activists have actually tried to usurp government power uh you know through the instrumentality of government power uh they they usurp uh that position and try to uh in 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 the worst terms possible even criminalize certain types of individuals for just practicing what they want to practice provided of course they are not harming anybody why should we uh, criminalize people like that but again all this is being labeled liberal secular and and the complete perversion of uh, uh these words has made it very difficult actually for those who are genuinely liberal and secular and then finally in this chapter we come to the issue of free speech which obviously you know everyone has strong views on this subject uh, our position is that except in situations and areas where there are severe security issues or you know the the region is a war zone or something our view is that india should embrace near absolute freedom of speech in that sense including a uh, criticism of all religions should be allowed uh this is because uh, freedom of expression is the cornerstone of individual rights as you expo- expounded upon in the book and uh, uh, interestingly again like one of the most interesting parliamentary debates that happened on this issue uh, in the early years of the creation of the indian republic uh was between shah prasad mukherjee the founder of the jansangh uh, at that time he was uh, uh, i think a member of the uh, government at that time if i remember correctly and between nehru nehru who wanted to dilute free speech so the original constitution of india actually provided for a much broader uh, license of free speech uh, but then that was whittled down by nehru uh, through the first amendment and sp Mukher- sp mukherjee at that time had said in parliament that india should have unrestricted absolute free speech on the lines of what sweden had uh, this of course requires strong state capacity which we will discuss in chapter 5 so uh, on that note uh, i think we should shift to a discussion on economics which will which is obviously key to building state capacity so there is a misconception uh, free markets don't require government or free markets are anti government in a sense uh, i think nothing could be further from the truth in fact uh, liberal economy and free markets require a strong but limited state uh and on that aspect of liberal economy uh, free markets i will now hand over to harsh to talk about uh, all the sort of economic policy related issues thank you so much uh, rajiv uh, we are now on chapter 4 the book has chapter five chapters so chapter 4 is called profit is not a dirty word um that is obviously in reference to what very famously or rather infamously nehru ji had told j r d tata that j don't talk to me about profit profit is a dirty word uh you know when 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 j r d tata had uh, brought up about the profitability or rather the loss making of the public sector units and then we i think recently somebody was very kind enough to share an interview of j r d tata on youtube and i think we all saw it uh, at least we saw parts of it and then she said that you know nehru ji and indira gandhi had kind of developed a nice technique that whenever he would talk about markets or economics they would start looking out of the window <laughs> and you know that was the end of discussion he understood that they do not want to discuss that so we we obviously say emphatically that profit is not a dirty word no economic no economy can run without profit uh, we have this kind of moral hypocrisy about profits um, it has significantly reduced but it is not fully gone 
for example in the case of our schools and colleges we still try to keep them non profit but obviously profits are made albeit in an illegal manner and people who benefit are not smart educational entrepreneurs although now hopefully it will change with edtech but people who are connected with politicians people who are connected with local bureaucrats and they show it as non profit but they know how to siphon off money in the from these trusts um and so what what eventually happens because of this hypocrisy you end up creating cronyism and corruption human incentives don't change um you know in fact capitalism in that sense is not so much an economic system it is actually a political human system which does not mean it should not be unregulated it very much should be regulated but it recognizes the primacy of human incentives and there are there are few parts of the chapter 4 one is morality of markets second is practical case of markets so the first is more of a normative case the second is more of a practical uh, you know technocratic case third part is india's digital transformation then is misfits rebels troublemakers the fifth part is what we call market feminism and dalit entrepreneurship and the last part is atmanirbhar capitalism because time is short i'll skip the first two parts which makes a more conventional case for market incentives and i'll go to india's digital transformation which i think is very interesting uh, the way we kind of because it's also very it's it's something new in the sense of um, what's happening with technology right now so for example as we argued india is transforming from a civilization to a nation through a state we've already argued that the state is penetrating deeper into all sections of society which have been long accustomed accustomed to disparate existence that you know like 100 years ago many families did not have a last name so you know like we based on your caste or gotra or your region once you came to the cities you ended up giving yourself a name uh, i definitely know that happened in my family's case that's why you also see the junjunwalas or from junjunu and so on and so forth and there is a, there is a famous scholar we kind of uh, uh, quote because of, uh, in this context from yale university called james c scott and uh, his concept of legibility in his book seeing like a state how certain schemes to improve the human condition have failed so he says the pre modern state was in many aspects blind it knew little about its subjects their wealth their lands their yields agricultural yields their location their very identity so when we say modernity you know there are many there are many connotations and some people don't like the word because they think it means westernization but at least in this book we are definitely not using the word like that at all what in the case of a modern state what it simply means is the state hopefully an accountable state like india as opposed to a non accountable state like china's an accountable state like india should be able to see a citizens tra- basic transactions while respecting privacy so that they can be taxed properly so that they can uh, make sure that nothing wrong or illegal is happening uh, and this is what is happening because of for example the aadhar and which rajiv and i suspect we don't directly write that in the book which is one of the reasons why a lot of people oppose the aadhar because they do not want the indian state to be capable and competent and non corrupt to do welfare smartly and efficiently uh because they're really afraid of the indian state having the power to do so so uh, this this digital transformation has made transferring money in india probably much easier than many developed countries both rajiv and i like many of you have probably lived worked studied or at least traveled outside of india and transferring money from bank to bank in india is much simpler than in some economies you would think would be much more advanced uh including the united states and singapore at least till recently um and this has allowed india the possibility to leapfrog uh through its digital soft infrastructure into a very smart welfare state and higher productivity and we talk about the jam trinity what is the jam trinity j is for 
uh, the jam trinity is a is for aadhar m is for uh, mobile phone and j is for the, the banks which have been opened for the poorest people 300 or 400 million bank accounts have opened in the last 6 years so now everybody has a bank account most indian adults have a bank account most of them have a have a phone even if they don't have a smartphone and all of them now effectively have a unique identification and therefore you can do something like cash transfers which was done when the pandemic started this year uh, we still don't have full databases uh, we have database of all the aadhar ids but we don't have databases of their income so it, so targeted welfare is still dif- uh, difficult but at least universal welfare if somebody were to decide that politically can be done which could not have been done even 5 years ago uh, and just imagine because i have actually worked uh, in rajasthan villages and delhi slums about 10 years ago for mit poverty action lab i've seen schemes like narega and i've seen villagers be asked for and give bribes at the local rural post office to get their 100 rupees uh, per day khata whatever their amount is now it's probably more than 100 rupees and they had to pay 30 40% of the amount as a bribe so this is huge uh so you whether as rajiv rightly mentioned you need the state and you need markets both and we need a smaller state but one uh, in terms of some areas where it's overreaching but where it, it exists we definitely need a competent state and that is what technology is allowing it and luckily india is one of the first countries to own it so i'll quickly go to the next section uh, which says misfits rebels and troublemakers i think this is very interesting it kind of goes along with the theme of the book of individual rights in a civilizational state you know ultimately all individuals are unique and what happened till 10 20 years ago all middle class parents would tell their children uh, please become an engineer or a doctor or go to ias otherwise it's very difficult for you to have an upper middle class lifestyle uh, in 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 a corrupt india in a poor india and from the parents point of view 15 20 years ago they were not necessarily wrong you know statistically they were right but what increasingly and this is only accelerate further a prosperous economy has allowed us people i i know people who are making money Uh, you know uh, organizing legal poker tournaments there are people who are rjs there are people who are uh, djs who are actors and which they are making as much money as, as any middle class or upper middle class professional and that misfit rebel and trouble maker is only possible within a capitalist system it's not possible in a socialist system um you know if in, in a socialist system the political power at the top is always most powerful uh, if you've seen a movie like the lives of others i think about east germany it shows you the dystopia uh so we we kind of quote about that we quote about um you know bollywood used to have a very socialist uh view in the 1960s and 70s and as we are seeing on twitter they also had many anti hindu attitudes um but you're seeing even that is now changing and is responding to people's awareness and their pocket books and their market incentives it's not fully changed it's, it's gradually changing i think there is a there is a good quote that rajiv and i have put from uh, the american artist andy warhol which says you know the beauty of beauty of capitalism is uh, the us president drinks coke list taylor drinks coke and just think you can drink coke too it's the same damn coke and that's the kind of uh, standardization and uh, economies of scale that capitalism brings i think this market feminism and dalit entrepreneurship is very interesting because people say that you know this uh, right wing hindus and right wing economists want to suppress women and dalits actually market feminism has done much more for female independence including financial independence than what is known as marxist feminism marxist feminism has only created university jobs it has not created any real private sector jobs um it's it is only an expanding economy that allows hitherto suppressed sections to have their own financial independence he quote copiously from uh, an us economist called gary becker who 
wrote many papers famously about how discrimination in a competitive economy hurts people who are discriminating um and we 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 give a very good example where there is less competition for example the 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 hindu newspaper which pretends to be liberal in chennai has some different policies in its own premises uh but as far as there is there is market competition uh, for indian multinationals they have to change their policies including their own dining policies internally um so this is, we give many examples of how competition makes people even if i don't agree with a certain habit or a certain view if i am operating in a competitive segment of the economy i cannot afford to discriminate because then i will lose out on talent that my competitor will go and take and we actually show that for example indian muslims are not discriminated against in the it sector because the it sector is very competitive so the five or six out of seven sections of the book of this particular chapter or chapter 4 are for free markets this is the only section in which we make a case partially against free markets against free trade unilaterally and absolutely and that also goes along with this entire concept of individual rights in a civilizational state where we say individual rights is akin as rajiv mentioned akin to skepticism and akin to free markets domestically but how what is a civilizational state part in it it can india leverage its size to get more investment and industrialize quicker by having for example good domestic infrastructure good integrated markets through gst <coughs> for all its faults but having moderate time bound tariffs which tells multinationals you only make in india for example hyundai or suzuki but if you make in india you will not have to pay so much tariffs and then you can export out of india as well and you because of your size you start attracting supply chains in a way that a sri lanka or a bangladesh cannot and atmanirbhar capitalism we say free market is very good but we should not be completely opposed to the idea of some industrial policy or some activist trade policy uh, because right now what happens is industries tend to agglomerate in one geography first it was japan then it was korea now china and even vietnam is doing very well because it is right next to southern china which is near guangdong and hong kong and all those industrialized areas it's easy for the chinese entrepreneurs to go culturally there similar areas bangladesh is doing very well we are discussing because bangladesh has some kind of export exemptions or uh, preferential tariff treatment from european union and other people in the west which india does not have now that might be part of our geopolitical and diplomatic work to do but those comparisons are wrong for india not only because india is larger but many of the situations don't apply india should not be export pessimistic but it will have to leverage its domestic market not just for industry but going forward i suspect for these big internet giants as well you know remember the case of paytm when it was going against google a month ago because google banned paytm of its android app store for one reason or the other and paytm said well, let's make our own india app store that may happen it may not happen soon it may happen through some other indian company with some indian government help but at some point in the digital economy with winner takes all we cannot allow in the name of free markets all the profits to be in california right so there is something to be said about smart leveraging of your size without making your economy inefficient and just because it is difficult to do is not a good excuse to not try it at all so that's the concept of atmanirbhar capitalism we would still like free trade with the west which is geopolitically friendly but people who are arguing for unilateral free trade should need to understand the geopolitical and geoeconomic threat that china presents communist china the way rajiv and i have described in detail in this book and hence you cannot have free trade with a country that is literally your enemy right there's a reason why we don't trade with pakistan as well um so i would i would leave it at that we quote alexander hamilton and many other people showing that actually some tariffs work very well america throughout the 19th century had 40% weighted average tariffs on imported finished goods
it only became free trader once it became dominant industrially itself and that's what actually all the countries have done historically uk germany india japan and now japan korea to lesser extent because they could export to america they were treaty allies and now china now china is talking about free uh, free trade because it has excess industrial capacity right so so those are interesting issues to just keep in mind and we should not be quote unquote religious about any economic doctrine broadly speaking free markets and incentives work but they have to work for the indian civilizational state and on speaking on the state how do we decolonize it how do we make its administration system better is the last chapter uh, we'll try to do quickly it's called decolonizing the indian state i'll hand it over to rajiv chapter 5 thank you harsh uh, so uh, intimately connected with the performance of the economy is having a focused uh, restructured government and state and obviously state includes uh, even the judiciary uh and uh, in overall sense so so what is the challenge that india faces here uh obviously lot of people uh, feel that there is too much government in india we need to get rid of government well the issue really is that we have too much government in the wrong areas and too little government in the areas that matter to sustain growth to enable growth uh so let me quote from the book where uh, we write in the long run without an effective state growth is impossible a strong state is a necessary but not sufficient condition for growth to be sustained the state has to be restrained while still being effective in specific areas india's problem is having state flab in the wrong places in the government and no muscle in areas that matter there are bloated ministries in the center as well as in the states but many vacancies in departments entrusted with actually executing critical programs and policies the indian bureaucracy is too generalist so what is the proper role of government in a nutshell government is there to provide security defense welfare for the poor, poorest and neediest sections of the population uh, and and beyond that really we have to question whether government should own hotels run an airline run myriad companies and in industries like steel and power uh, because all these activities actually defocus from this proper role of government and uh, in in the fifth chapter uh, titled decolonizing the indian state uh, in a very expansive way we talk about all these kind of administrative governance issues touching upon nearly every single aspect of governance so, so one uh, consistent theme important sort of a very critical uh, part of chapter 5 which we make uh and we hope that that message is uh, sort of absorbed by all readers is that administrative reform is so critical today in india uh, uh that uh, you know we can no longer ignore it uh so today you know what we find is a government job is a job for life senior officers are selected or they are finding themselves in the high posts that they have based on a generalist comparative examination which they had taken some decades ago even as the world is getting more and more specialist uh and and there is a lack of sheer numbers uh you know where where certain types of roles and responsibilities uh are simply understaffed in india dramatically take the strength of the indian foreign service uh, pool so these are the officers who are india's diplomats who are india's representatives ambassadors in foreign countries uh and uh, to quote some statistics from the book 
uh, India has just 2,700 staff members and 912 foreign service officers. Countries like China with 4,500, Japan with 5,700, France with 6,000, and the US with 20,000 are way ahead. In fact, in India, we are literally every year uh, taking just a few dozen new IFS officers. So there is a need to dramatically increase intake. because there is a sh- actually a shortage of diplomats and ambassadors and uh, skilled sort of uh, personnel in this field so an overhaul system systemic change is required actually on the administrative side what we need is lateral entry and some component of variable performance based pay for uh, those who are in the middle and higher ranks there is a there is a need to have higher pay in cash and a reduced pay in kind for such officers and uh, bureaucrats what we find today is you know the even the cabinet secretary of india for example is probably paid something like uh, i think it's the number is something like something close to 3 lakhs a month but then there is an array of benefits that come with that you know you you get the bungalow in delhi you get certain staff uh, kind of emoluments and so on and so forth so our case is that is probably better to have higher cash compensation and a lower in kind compensation so that actually we know what is the true cost that we are being pay that we are paying and and actually uh, the true cost is even more distorted when we assess entry level jobs in government so the pay and benefits that an entry level uh, official manages to get in government is is disproportionately higher than they what they would get in the private sector which is why you know we routinely see headlines in the media that you know there is a recruitment going on for some low level officer posts and tens of thousands of people are applying for it obviously the media spins it as some kind of uh, unemployment problem but the truth is that uh, those who are able to get in to these jobs have a job for life you know not much work is expected to be done from such officers in these posts and you see your pay and uh, kind of benefits going up almost for sure for many decades to come which is why these jobs are in demand so let me quote again uh, a short passage to emphasize this point because i think this is known as it should be so and i quote from the book this disproportionately high pay granted to lower levels compared to the market rate for similar jobs in the private sector distorts the labor market it wastes the youth of tens of millions of people who keep trying their luck to somehow land a government job with his lifelong job security and multiple non cash perks even the cash component at the lower levels is higher than the comparable private sector jobs the result is that advanced degree holders are applying in tens of thousands for entry level posts so then uh, let's let's uh, shift gears away from administrative reform towards uh, topics of education and health uh due to paucity of time let me just summarize that really quickly uh, because i want to talk more about the judicial aspect of uh, governance reform so in education and health uh you know we know about the issues posed by the right to education act which is kind of discriminatory towards uh uh, uh those of one religion and kind of doesn't affect those in the minority religion and so on so there is a apt case reform that you know we we have to treat all indians as equal irrespective of what religion or what group they come from uh and in a broader sense too there is a need to accept that uh, education too is a profit making activity 
so closing our eyes and pretending that no 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 one should make any ed- money in education well that is not a practical thing it is better to regulate it is better to uh, sort of uh, place uh, certain types of maybe rules and requirements for those who are in the education business rather than pretending that uh, everything is non profit uh and and on the health side as we're going through a pandemic we all realizing i think the importance of public health the importance of investment in public health uh and we make a detailed case uh, and present some detailed models on achieving efficiency expanding coverage and all of that in the book so let me jump quickly to the section on judicial reforms so uh this too has been a contentious sort of area uh for the last like uh, especially for the last 6 years since there's been a change in government with the exit of the congress entry of the bjp uh where where the judiciary is seen by certain groups certain activist groups as kind of a uh you know buffer against the government uh and and you know this whole uh, aspect of the basic structure doctrine has been made some kind of a untouchable unchangeable immutable uh thing uh and uh, but but to take a step back from that the fundamental issue i think today with the judiciary is the selection system we talked about the selection system for senior officials and top bureaucrats uh, the selection system for the judiciary is even more opaque and non transparent even even some people would argue not very meritocratic because india is one of the few countries in the world where the judges actually appoint themselves so the system that we have is a collegium system where uh, the judges decide who will be the chief justice of a high court who will get to be a supreme court judge and so on uh so so what is necessary is actually uh changing that and uh, there was an attempt to change it 5 years ago uh with the creation of the national judicial appointments commission the njac but then the creation of that itself was shot down by the judges on the ground that is against the basic structure uh so this basic structure is actually a very interesting concoction where anything that the judges believe uh is sort of a part of the basic structure becomes a part of the basic structure there seems to be no consistent uh kind of laid down in black and white criteria to say that you know this is a part of the basic structure of the constitution and thus it is a part of what judges can can or cannot strike down versus uh, uh you know them having kind of an arbitrary control on that aspect uh so so changing the selection system somewhere and evolving strong first principles and taking a first principles based approach uh is is actually very important for even economic growth because often in many cases we find that uh there is a certain arbitrariness and that affects like investment sentiment uh you know there was the infamous case of you know one fine day the supreme court banned having uh i think alcohol serving establishments near a national highway uh and they said that you know within some uh, few kilometers or whatever you can't have a alcohol serving establishment and then that sent the entire hotel and restaurant industry for example some of them which were near the highway in gurgaon and you know gurgaon because of its location is near national highways so all those establishments are scurrying around trying to find a way around it the state governments are passing laws redesignating certain highways as state highways so that they don't have to comply with the supreme court guideline and then all this happens and then one finally the supreme court says okay never mind you know we take it back 
so it just kind of reduces the confidence of the public and the judiciary uh, you know on what basis are these decisions being made one fine day they say something the next day, next few months later they say something else and uh, the the other infamous case was that of the singing the national anthem so one uh, you know the court decides one day that everyone must stand up when the national anthem is played or rather they require the national anthem to be pay, played in cinema halls and they say that everyone has to stand up uh, and then you know obviously there's outrage there is criticism actually of not the court per se but actually the government because some people think this is some nationalist agenda being pushed by the government of india so all kinds of outrage happens and then after some months the court says okay never mind now we don't need to do it why should people wear patriotism on their sleeves the judges proclaim so so you know the episodes like this uh, just kind of uh, take away from the kind of gravitas of the court which is not a good thing for the indian state which is not a good thing for our democracy uh, so something to introspect there i think for the judiciary and uh, uh, i think i think evolving those first principles on based on which uh, the the judicial pronouncements are made uh, as well as improving the selection system collect, collect, uh, correcting the selection system for the judges these two reforms are absolutely critical both to get some kind of balance uh, into the system as well as uh, you know not causing economic damage to be honest so so uh, with the economic liberalization measure, measures that harsh talked about uh, that are covered in chapter 4 and the governance reform measures of chapter 5 uh, india is going to be a freer richer nation uh, i think we are building a modern industrial knowledge based economy and and you know when there is knowledge and money you know power is going to follow uh, india will be a force to reckon with on the world stage so then the question becomes what do we do with this power Uh, what do we use this for or what do we not use this for equally and uh, you know as we were researching uh, this book and going through different kinds of opinions expressed on this on this issue harsh and i were both very amused to learn that some intellectuals in india have actually written at length on why india cannot and must not be a superpower uh, there were actually academic seminars held on this topic india must not be a superpower which which we thought was actually an absurd kind of a view because given its sheer size given the population india obviously is one sixth roughly of humanity uh, india will be a very important great power in on the world stage in the 21st century and why shouldn't it be uh, just just by force of democratic numbers you know if you are a sixth of humanity you should have a say in how the world is run in how uh, uh, global affairs are conducted and i think what india will bring to the table will bring to the world is a message of universalism as captured by the hindu prayer sarve bhavantu sukhina so on that note let me hand over to harsh now to talk at length on what we cover in the concluding chapter of the book harsh over to you thank you so much rajiv it's not it's the conclusion the chapters are over now um so i'll i'll just quickly read this aspect you know um as jnu political scientist this is from the uh, conclusion called india's moment as jnu political scientist ajay gudavarti observed the quote unquote hindutva brand of politics seems to be one step ahead in and he is not a pro hindutva person by the way in articulating the idea of justice for all which should have ideally come from those championing secularism and more so from the religious minorities themselves 
you know, and this is this is one of those things which makes it so fascinating to observe India and all that stuff. So it's 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 very really fascinating the way Indian politics is evolving. You know, even beyond debates on how the republic should evolve, the very notion that India is a civilizational entity has surprisingly come to be contested. You know, hearing a petition against the use of the Sanskrit mantra "Asato Ma Sadagame," which means "Please lead me from unreality to reality," in the Kendra Vidyalayas, the court had a case and it said the petition raised court questions of seminal importance about our interpretation of Article Twenty Eight, Section One of the Constitution, which says no religious instruction shall be provided uh, to the to any educational institution by state fund. Now, forget all the madrasas and the Christian. schools which are getting taxpayers money ignoring even that hypocrisy to this the solicitor general of india tushar mehta pointed out that the shloka from the upanishads was not necessarily religious in nature you cannot compare dharmic religions to abrahamic religions and he added the supreme court's own motto yato dharmo tato jaya is actually from the mahabharat and in context so, so just imagine you know there is this there is a confusion about what is our culture and civilization in the in the in in west till fairly recently in rajiv and i have mentioned this multiple times we had this concept called great courses in 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 the in the colleges uh, so so you know they used to take homer iliad odyssey they would understand their own civilizational heritage even an atheist in the uk called richard dawkins says you cannot understand english culture and language without studying king james bible and in india we have not studied even the gita forget the rest of the mahabharat in our schools we know what we know through our grandmothers through the internet through talking to each other um, whereas in the late 1960s the congress led union government indira gandhi is the prime minister then when she started the raw agency she gave it the motto of dharmo rakshati rakshatah that is the motto of the research and analysis wing which is india's external intelligence agency so clearly the supreme court and the raw and other parts of the indian uh, other indian institutions have motos with the word dharma in it but now in 2020 it is seen as a right wing hindu thing it's very interesting how this has shifted um which is why we say the right wing and left wing words do not make any sense to us we are just rec- reclaiming which we think is central to indian civilization again this you know we have illustrations on ramayana and mahabharat in the original copy of the indian institution that again illustrates the point that this is not right and left so this combination of pseudo secularism and socialist economics exacerbates our divisions so first through socialist economics you make sure everybody is poor then people fight on the few resources in the fighting you say okay you will get it based on your community and then you fight more based on that identity because you, there is not enough for us as individuals to go get what we get and then that's just a vicious cycle but what we are saying is india has finally broken out of this we call it a moment of singularity we call it a we call it a virtuous cycle you know there is a book about warren buffett called the snowball a snowball is basically a, an ice ball that becomes larger and larger as it goes down the mountain and i think that virtuous cycle has started for india you know the so called leftist progressives confront an intellectual singularity because they have little moral and intellectual room to go to a space that is not occupied already the right has taken ownership of all the ideas of justice and development citizens of all backgrounds are seeing through this spurious liberalism and pseudo secularism narendra modi set a national aspiration that no indian prime minister has set so far when he said in 2015 that india should aim to be a 20 trillion dollar economy yes in moments of crisis to some people such talk may seem facetious but for too long india has been a nation of unfulfilled greatness and as rajiv mentioned the idea that we should be strong 
that we should be powerful, that we should be rich. Not that we will not be. That's a separate debate. That we should be is also told that it is wrong. It is somehow illegitimate. It is immoral. That kind of self-effacedness is what India has firmly rejected. This is the context that we find as we approach 75 years of independence. The government has taken long overdue reforms on the economic side, much has been happened, and so on the civilizational side as well. Um, now, what has happened is with India having experienced some prosperity, the middle class or the neo-middle class, as some people call it, beca has become a very strong backer of this kind of politics. And hence, the an, another point in support of the virtuous cycle thesis. This height, this tide of heightened aspirations has created a singularity exerting insurmountable forces that are crushing and inescapable. Without deep introspection, the cynics long accustomed to shaping India's image will be unable to emerge from their obscurity. What India has achieved is through the civilizational state, it will give rise to a new universalism without homogenizing humanity. There are other universalisms which want to homogenize humanity. India's is the only universalism which does not want to homogenize humanity that is best encapsulated in the word dharma, which is the basis of our civilizational state. As a well-known prayer in India goes, and you know the last, uh, the last section of the last chapter, which Rajiv had read out, was known as uh, Saraswati, Durga, and Lakshmi. You know, uh, knowledge, power, and prosperity, and that is especially important to keep in mind today, uh, given the festivals that we are uh, celebrating and uh, the gods that goddesses that we are worshiping today. Om Sarve Bhavantu Sukhinaha, Sarve Santu Niramaya. And we translate that for those who do not understand Hindi or Sanskrit. Om, may all become happy. May all be healthy. May all see what is auspicious. May no one suffer in any way. Om, peace, peace, peace. This, this uh, summary of our civilization does not see as us versus them. It is not saying only those who believe in these goddesses should be happy. It is saying everybody should be happy. And may no one suffer in any way. At the same time, those who do adharma, as the goddess Durga shows, we, she's also not hesitant in using violence against them. And I think that is the right balance and the right note to end the readout of the book on. And we are very happy to take your questions. Over to you, Rahul. Thank you very much, Harsh, Rajiv. Brilliant talk. Very enlightening. So I'll start with my questions first. Uh, perhaps to uh, Rajiv, I guess, or maybe Harsh. So this we have a wonderful talk, by the way, on judicial reform by advocate uh, Anand Prasad. He's a corporate lawyer and very, very insightful talk. You may want to watch it. I'll send it on WhatsApp. But this basic structure business, you know, we're not going to be able to change it because even the parliament cannot legislate against the basic structure of the constitution, supposedly. So I don't know. How do we solve this conundrum? I'll, I'll take a stab at it. So uh, on basic structure, actually, uh, as it's um, um, a lawyer scholar who happens to be my wife, Akhi Ghosh. She has written uh, extensively on this. And you're right. If you go by the basic structure doctrine, by definition, you cannot replace the basic structure doctrine or modify it or change it because the claim of the basic structure doctrine is that the judiciary can nullify even a supermajority. That's a constitutional amendment passed with, say, two-third majority and with, many, with the state's assent. But at some point, which is why we mentioned that the basic structure doctrine is not either narrowed down or completely got rid of, but it can also be narrowed down or made more consistent by the court itself, it will lead to a constitutional crisis. 
because if just imagine, as uh, Rajiv alluded to, NJAC, which was passed in 2015, the National Judicial Appointments Commission, which said that unlike all democracies, you guys can't just appoint yourselves. Okay, there has to be some kind of bipartisan political. That is the people who are actually elected. Some accountability and check. For example, the way it happens in the U.S. and you can have a different approach. That's fine. But and you can, for example, the Supreme Court could have said in the NJAC there is not enough safeguard for the opposition polit politician, or there is not enough safeguard for the judiciary. They could have talked about the numbers. They did not fine tune it. They did not modify it. They simply rejected it and said the collegial the collegium system which they have invented through two or three rulings over the decades. They said that will what will remain, and I think obviously it was the first term, the first couple of years of Modi government, and they de decided not to take it ahead. Remember, it was passed by all parties and all states. They decided not to fight on that. Um, right now, obviously, a lot has happened with 370 and CA. So I think we are in the early stages, but I have no doubt that there will be an intellectual pushback against it because there is no consistency. Imagine the basic structure doctrine comes, says fundamental rights cannot be abrogated. But the private property fund is no longer a fundamental right in India, whereas private property was a fundamental right in the original constitution. The word socialism, secularism was brought in during the emergency, which is an euphemism for dictatorship created by Indira Gandhi for two years. And now we are told that something which was passed when the opposition politicians were in jails cannot even be removed by a supermajority constitutional amendment. That does not make sense anywhere in, by any common sense of the word. The only reason why it has gone so far is because nobody has attacked it. And historically, the court, I don't think it would be unfair to say it. And in any case, now, if we get, uh, if, if, the, if the court uh, <laughs> goes against us, you have to pay one rupee now. That is the new benchmark to speak against the court as, uh, as Prashant Bhushanji has, uh, has done it for us. So, you know, it, it would not be unfair to say that uh, the courts have had a leftist bias. And there are some people in the broader Congress or center-left ecosystem, so to speak, who want to use the judiciary as a weapon to nullify what the popular majority wants. And I, and once again, I say there is something called a basic law in Germany, but uh, you know, UK for, does not even have a written constitution. US has judicial accountability or judicial activism only against laws, not against constitutional amendments. But even if you want to have a basic law or a basic structure, you have to keep it very minimal. You have to keep it say, for example, elections must happen on time that basic rights of life will be prevented. You cannot have it an expansive view where in the basic structure, Hindu schools under RTE have quotas, even if they don't take one pesa from the government, but Muslim and Christian schools are exempt from these regulations, even if they get all the money from the government. This just, again, this just completely is absolutely abhorrent of any common sense. You don't have to be right or left to understand this. So I don't think it will last. I think it, if the if the court does not in due course of time back off, it will lead to a constitutional crisis and that will not be in anybody's favor. So I'll just leave it at that. Thank you. I have two more questions before I'll pass, pass the baton to... And just to, just to add Rahul on that, uh, yeah. you know, in, uh, just very quickly. So in the book, for example, we've quoted from uh, three, you know, three of probably I would say the three most uh, kind of eminent authorities on uh, uh, law and particularly constitutional law of India, uh, Dr. Dr. Ambedkar, H.M. Sirvai, and Nani Palhiwala. So if you see particularly their views on you know, the insertion of socialist and secular, or in Ambedkar's case, he had talked about why we should not have such kind of prescriptions inside the constitution. 
you know th- there is no equivocation there you know they are they are very clear that this is not reasonable i mean how can the constitution permanently enshrine something which is a matter of policy that is for an elected government to decide so so uh, there, there are so many problems with uh, this kind of a uh, concoction that harsh is i think uh, uh, i think he's correct when he says that you know it will if the judiciary digs in there will be a face off sooner or later thank you harsh question for you you mentioned uh, civilization culture and civilization are two different things very powerful insight you know i've also not had these argument i mean we don't have these narratives to counter the kebab and shared language business sometimes so thank you for this insight right does india have two civilizations currently within it and if yes is your answer how do we deal with it yes i think uh, it would be fair to say that the, uh, the there is a two, the 200 million, million muslims in india and i would not make the mistake of saying all of them belong to the islamic civilization i would be very careful of saying something like that because there is a genuine spectrum of views but i would say that there are a large number it could be plurality it could be majority do share a world view that can be described as civilizational that share that looks towards the rest of the islamic civilization that if it was within its power it would have more and more sharia laws and it would be fundamentally antithetical to the way we are not just as a constitutional democracy but as a civilizational republic as well so when people say acha aap to two nation theory ki baat kar rahe hain jinna ne bhi ye baat kari thi see my answer to that is very simple if there are two people and one person does not want to stay within your framework and you simply recognize that then you are not responsible for the other person's framework you are only acknowledging it you are not creating the other person's framework so i am just simply saying that the uh, the central message of orthodox islam and to the extent to some extent even orthodox christianity these two global proselytizing religions is that non believers go to hell that there is there is in the case of islam they use the word kafir in the case of christianity they use the word heathen and that is again not all muslims and christians believe in it they might have their own heterodox interpretations of the religion so it's important to separate those two but there is certainly a residual islamic civilizational world view within india um it is explained in the sense for example jamaat e islami had four parts has now four parts one in pakistan one in bangladesh one in kashmir and one in rest of india and you and their 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 apologists say that the only the jamaat e islami hind india has had a ideological involution and they stand for secularism conveniently jamaat e islami pakistan jamaat e islami bangladesh and jamaat e islami kashmir they have not had ideological involution now it just imagine how convenient that is because within an indian majority case within within an indian a hindu or dharmic majority case uh, that is the situation uh, where uh, they want to actually get by by saying that secularism in in their in their definition of allowing soft sharia is 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 something good uh, so i think there is a clear hypocrisy there um, so uh, the answer is yes and that that it remains a challenge for us how to integrate that and the reason the challenge is harder is because there is a clear demographic trend as well uh, which which we have to discuss separately it's a it's a massive no, issue itself and and i'll also just add quickly to that so you know there are even within so called minorities there are minorities right there is a sub minority within a larger minority but uh, uh, in the current construct we have in india right now those minorities within minorities are actually told by the state that no you can't think like that you have to think like this 
so so we are kind of uh, the government itself is forcing even the heterodox thinkers to go towards orthodoxy and uh, that is why it is so important to have individual rights front and center you know in the hindu charter uh, one of the the leaders of the movement the ideological leaders of the movement uh, i won't name him retired officer uh, ips officer he actually says that india is an apartheid state and uh, you know you are actually incentivizing also sankrant sanu says the same thing we incentivize conversion or the movement towards radicalism and orthodoxy in some ways my final question for a comment from either one of you um a lot of our side of people right left i don't know how you want to define it conservative if you like economic conservatives uh, as jerry rao would put it uh, in one of our talks and in, in the indian conservative um so some would argue that the modi government itself is extremely socialist your comments okay i'll take a stab at it first i think see um as rajiv and i mentioned this state versus market dichotomy is not how it actually works on the ground if it was the reality as i often say somalia would be the most prosperous country in the world okay somalia has no state whereas some of the most prosperous and most livable areas in the world are places like say sweden canada switzerland america and they have very extensive governments but they're also extremely market friendly and business friendly you can argue about the level of taxation and redistribution but opening a business running a business closing a business doing trade very very easy so the what happens is in a market you need somebody to be a facilitator you need somebody to literally create the market the rules of the game standardize weights and measurements have a good contractual judicial system make sure there is good state capacity and policing capacity nobody comes and extorts from your factory these you, these state capacity and market entrenchment go hand in hand what narendra modi has done in the first term and then i'll come to the second term for example if you are creating rural roads and to be fair other governments have also created it but if you add on to that lpg if you add on to that electrification last mile and now in the second term if you add on to that drinkable potable water in every household by 2024 that is the aim you are bringing on to the market with basic human capacities maybe hundreds of millions of more people how is that not a pro market move because you are literally expanding the market for so many indian entrepreneurs and to add on to that that is not just the indian government's move but that's also driven by technology not just uid but for example the geo phenomenon it's a private sector phenomenon but india today has the cheapest data rates in the whole world and an average indian on a per person per day basis downloads and uses more mobile cell phone data than an average american and imagine the kind of for example the zoom seminar that we are doing in the middle of a pandemic is possible because of technology and you don't have to be multi millionaire to have access to this technology that is now it's it, people don't even need a laptop they can do it on their phone even the phone doesn't need to be that fancy so the 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 booming of amazons and flipkarts and swiggies and zomatos and ubers and olas we can argue about how much indianization it should happen or not the, there is a clear ownership in, there's an improvement in ease of living along with the ease of business rankings that the modi government has achieved so similarly ibc ibc gst gst creates an integrated market there are some issues that we discuss in the book but it's 90% a positive ibc IBC is something that allows exiting of businesses. You cannot have capitalism without exit. Something that you know, people, somebody who we all know and respect, somebody like Sanjeev Sanyal, 
principal economic advisor he worked very hard on the ibc aspect of it and I, it's not just a law because there you have to work very hard in creating the new quasi judicial structure the ibc professionals there needs to be some precedents in court there is a lot of soft legal infrastructure that needs to be created it takes time so now imagine because of the ibc your debt recovery improves so if a company goes bad as a bond holder of the company if i got 10 paisa on a rupee now i can get 40 paisa on a rupee if i got it in 5 years i can now get it in 2 or 3 years therefore the bond market improves therefore there are competition for banks to lend at better rates so the entire architecture is being created it is different so it's only land labor and capital is not factor market reforms and even there we've done labor reforms in the second term which i am coming to now we've done capital market reforms by having reits and invits real estate and investment infrastructure trusts which again bring a lot of foreign patient capital so the plumbing of the indian economy has dramatic and nothing like this was done in 10 years of upa1 and upa2 now the the reason the critique comes is because the growth rates especially in the last couple of years have not been so high so i don't blame the common person the common person bol raha hai itna acha ho raha to mera growth kyun nahi ho raha right and that's a fair question to ask but the point is a lot of these growths not only have a delayed lag in terms of showing results in fact in some cases they are short term deflationary there's something called the j curve in the short term they actually lead to contraction rajiv has independently also written about it both on a structural and technological basis so we have to be uh, we have to be patient and the final point is the global point global macro point india is not alone the last 8 or 9 years have been a strong dollar phase whenever the dollar is strong emerging economies grow slowly most of the upa phase was a weak dollar phase whenever the dollar is weak emerging economies grow faster i personally think by 2021 we'll be permanently in the next few years for the next few years in a weaker dollar phase and therefore i'm very optimistic not just an economist as a commentator as a writer but as an investor who has my money my clients money my company's money on the line that we will see significant growth come back i have said 5 trillion dollar by fy25 and 12 trillion dollars by fy31 and i stick with those targets that some people think are ludicrously optimistic uh, rajiv do you want to add something to it no no i'll just say two things uh, one is you know to really summarize what harsh has said there are two words for it state creation so what narendra modi is doing is creating a state to be very uh, blunt about it because can you have a country growing sustainably where there are you know people running uh, steel mills on cash entirely in cash like a business which is in steel manufacturing is running on cash can you have a country where there is mass cheating is a norm in a state like uttar pradesh mass cheating is going on you know someone comes and tries to stop it the opposition politicians say that we will allow it elect us we will allow you to cheat uh, wholesale so you know these are the, this is the starting point i think i think it is lazy to say actually that this is pro market this is anti market he is a socialist these are i mean throwing around labels like this actually uh, is not helpful beyond a point like we have to we have to carefully see where are we standing today and where we are standing today is that there has been frankly a complete absence of state right so you know so many people in the country you know the multi millionaires even billionaires in the country they are used, they were used to dealing in cash entire businesses are running in cash you know there, there is a informal lending market all kinds of things are going on now someone comes in and throws a spanner in the works uh then you say that no wait uh, you know he is regressive he is this he is that but how do you change this 
you know the controversial policy of demonetization you know i've written in support of it i think i think there was a need to break the pattern how do you change habits those who are living outside the system and then complaining ki mera road kharab hai mera school nahi hai mera hospital nahi hai to bhai sabko apne taxes to dene padenge na we all have to pay our taxes if we want a functional state if we want a functional government to provide public services then we need to pay taxes you mentioned this uh, right up where they said india, why india should not be a superpower what was the arg- argument given there so this was actually a seminar by uh, the you know eminent historian uh, ramchandra guha uh, i think he was in canada or something and he spelled out like 10 reasons why india cannot and must not become a superpower i think that talk is available on youtube uh, but he basically you know gives all the problems that are there in the country he talks about uh, at that time i mean interestingly many of those problems have been resolved uh you know he talks about maoism or left insurgency and this and that and frankly that problem you know has been controlled by this government uh so he gave essentially what you can call a drain inspectors report uh and uh, said that you know we cannot and we must not do this because you know there are so many problems in india that is this even possible and then obviously he's on the foreign soil uh there are all these like uh, i guess like american canadian researchers students listening to him and they are, I, i wonder what they must be thinking the moment you mentioned eminent historian and this name i was like okay then i need to listen to the arguments so thank you harsh and thank you sanjeev for such a wonderful talk i have two three questions so would you want me to uh, you know list down all the questions so that you can decide who would answer what yeah just just go ahead all together fine perfect all right um you know when you talked about uh, skepticism and certainism i resonated with so much because it is not just modernization but even in the current context with the rising hindutva people want you to pick sides uh, so i'll give you an example i'm not on any social media platform i opened a twitter account and the status that you put there i said i'm a seeker but a skeptical believer and i was hounded from all the sides saying that how can you be so negative about everything uh, so being skeptical is somehow being called negative and it is from both the sides people who associate themselves with left from the right so your uh, you know view on that one uh, the second question is when we say you know words like dharma when we say word like karma they don't fit in the dictionary and people try and look for an english word for it shouldn't it be the case that if you don't have the word and if the if the language is deficient uh you know we should say that okay then let's use the word that we have for example murti people are contemplating whether it should be called idol whether it should be called uh, deity no deity is what we see in that but what is the physical manifestation the physical man- manifestation is murti right so your views on that um uh your i really love this concept that you talked about the diversity is skin deep and not soul deep in western civilization i would definitely purchase the book and read more about it so that i can come again and you know probably ask you questions on that um one question that i have is on the judicial reform that we talked about some people say that we should have judges for life your views on that and also to say that uh, okay i think this is a, we, we will not forget so let me answer this and then we'll come back to you uh, sure because my short term memory is terrible Okay, so I'll take the first question that you've asked uh, about um, skepticism. I I fully understand where you're coming from, 
and that we actually have a section in the in the first chapter itself that is india that is bharat and the section is called contradictions of an indian renaissance and we actually say but the fears are not entirely unfounded one section of the hindu nationalist so called spectrum is straying from the tradition that espouses skepticism and openness under the garb of protecting nehru's land of bharat from foreigners in a delicious irony while perpetually protecting the land from alien faiths some of the self anointed protectors have come under the influence of those very foreigners aping their anti delivian dictates um as the philosopher nietzsche observed those who fight with monsters should be careful lest they become that themselves uh, and we go on and we we give the example of you know uh, we say that these groups seem to have internalized the anti blasphemy attitudes of medieval turks and the prudery of victorian england um and so so i see first of all there will always be a wide spectrum of opinion and by that itself that is to be expected and we respect that we also say in this book itself that there are many shades of hindutva like it depends on how you interpret the word uh for us i think if you are not skeptical if you say that this is the only reality to me that actually sounds very unhindu so and i've always believed that there are some people who very aggressively argue that oh my god the, any atheist cannot be hindu and i said may that may or may not be true but so long as his or her intentions are fine i would not want to say that because for example in when i was in college i would call myself an atheist i no, none of my parents ever forced me to worship in any way whatsoever i have come to where i have entirely on my own volition thinking about what it means to be indian to be a human to be alive what death means what family means i have come to this entirely on my own and i think to hound people uh, so as you saying that you know you are a seeker not a believer i would say well it is what it is i would say just to ignore you know and there are people on all sides who have an extremist view i for example uh, in the last few months have had a few controversies online when i spoke against caste uh, and my interpretation of jati and varna and again there are very reasonable intelligent views on all sides of that uh, but i firmly believe that there should be no birth based jati varna system and now we are in a different era where there is uh, we don't do in a non monetary reciprocal system that some people will deliberately only focus on uh, scholarship and forego money others will focus on money others will focus on state craft and military affairs and other people will be farmers and some people will be either in forests or cleaning toilets to me that system does not make sense uh, in in today's world people should have the social mobility and opportunity to be whatever they want and a lot of people i would say are loud they disagree but actually in the larger scheme of things they are the fringe within the hindutva movement i'll tell you why if you go by the rss if you go by the bjp we'll both agree that they are the leaders of that movement right you go by consistently by what mohan bhagwat ji is saying what narendra modi ji is saying and not just what they're saying what they're doing this government actually increased uh, the amount a, a temporary scheme that is paid to hindu couples in which one of the uh, person man or woman is a dalit now you can agree or disagree about the social engineering state ko karna chahiye nahi karna chahiye i have mixed feelings about it but the intention is very clear that we will not be against uh people from different so called castes marrying uh, and this is something that the bjp government is supporting so i would simply say that you know there are people of all opinions but that is not the mainstream understanding of what we now call the hindutva or the sang parivar movement whatever civilizational term you want to use the term itself is not so important uh, rajiv do you want to add to the second question i think was uh i see this i was telling you my short term memory is bad the second question kya tha the skepticism part i fully agree with harsh uh you know uh, i think i think uh, you know just coming online on any platform nowadays 
best to have a thick skin uh there are all kinds of views and sometimes the most vocal ones uh they seem to be uh, dominant but they are just vocal actually so they may not necessarily be the most dominant one of the question i think one of the questions was about soul deep and skin deep and what the, you yes you were mentioning the word dharma and non translatables yes i agree yeah, so best to best to use the words as is actually yes i i fully many, agree many many hindi sanskrit uh words and even words from other indian languages have come into the english language uh right so why not why not these words uh so i i agree that we should just stick to the words as we use them let's finish my second part of the question so one was that you know um there is a argument to say that judges for life so to say that you know they have this hanging sword that once they will retire they have to again you know go and fetch for it retirement money would not be enough with the lifestyle that they want to sustain so to say that you know, let's take that you know employment worry away from them and say that okay you can the uh, the other argument for that would be that if the person like we have it for us right now right the more conservative uh, uh, you know both than the liberal or for that matter the leftist view that could be one of the implications the second is the jury system that we used to have today people worry about the fact the hindus for that matter say that you know why are you getting into our practices and justifying our practices by the standards that you somehow have developed um and do you think that the jury system should be back where in the the common man should have a say in 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 what happens so your views on that so i'll i'll take a first stab at it then i'll hand over to rajiv i think both are very excellent thought provoking questions first question is should judges be for life in the supreme court for example to begin with the second question is uh, the jury system for the way we have traditionally in common law countries like um the uk or us the first question i will say given that the indian system has developed uniquely in the last 70 75 years and as you we were discussing this basic structure doctrine the untrammeled powers the judges have in the current setup right now if we go to a us style uh, judge for life i think that will i am afraid that will lead to more arrogance and more concentration of power at least right now there is a bit of a churn going on so if somebody is of a certain view you know he or she is going to retire in two or three years and there is there is an implicit balance of power because even though they are selecting the judges the government at least has the power to withhold their assent for some time the second time if they come back with the nomination then as per their interpretation right now the the government has to agree but at least the first time the government can hold it up a bit so there is a bit of a churn and every government every two or three years gets a say so i would i would i would right now given the balance the way it has developed not be in favor of for life Uh, no and and especially especially with the basic structure doctrine existing as it does uh i mean then i think we would end up creating kind of unelected dictators actually exactly we had judges for life and on the second point on the jury i think uh, what was the famous movie with like the akshay kumar that was jury case i think that was the last jury case that happened in india right the bombay case uh yeah. the murder nanavati nanavati some nanavati case yeah nanavati case yeah, so i think that was the last jury case that if i'm not wrong that happened in india uh, after independence but after that the, they decided not to go ahead with it because this person who was clearly a murderer i think he was exonerated by the jury um on the basis of emotions and oh my god his wife had cheated on him and therefore if he took revenge uh, there was an element of pity for the husband and anger for the person who was murdered which again that's a, if i'm not wrong i'm not a lawyer by the way but i think that again shows the problems with the jury right we have to remember that india became a universal adult franchise democracy when literacy was 10 or 
now it is 60 or 70 80 percent it's much higher amongst the young for no doubt it's almost 100 percent below the age of 20 even though the quality of education is an issue but we are still nowhere as educated on average compared to a western nation as of now i'm sure it will converge within a generation and then we can relook at it but the idea in the west at least in america if i'm not wrong is a bit of a lottery system right you live in a particular area and out of a lottery system some jury members are elected in today's case a jury might end up becoming might bring their own views which might be not in sync uh, with the kind of individual right responsibility and and that's a very difficult uh, thing to struggle with like do you want somebody to say ki agar usne murder kiya in that case he or she deserves it uh, kind of a khap panchayat mentality um, i think i think that is problematic uh, but having said that i think it's an excellent idea to explore 10 20 years from now i i i fundamentally think the idea of at least some jury review is fundamentally okay but if you would do it right now then you'd have to have some kind of qualifications a cut off which would seem elitist and therefore anti democratic and therefore it will just become a new controversy but i could be wrong about it and i don't have very strong views to be honest i have a question here in written uh, what causes the increase in left wing communism policy in india well i'm not sure if there is an increase of late i i mean i'm right no but if we but if we but if we trace back the history actually uh, what what actually led to that rise i would say it started in the mid 60s or late 60s and it's a very interesting uh, political aspect to it where uh, after uh, lal bahadur shastri ji's passing uh, there was a tussle in the congress as to who would become the leader and then there was a split in the congress actually 1969 where murarji desai and a number of other sort of centrist or you know again we are using labels but non left or rightist sort of leaders of the congress left the congress and then at that time actually indira gandhi had to turn to the support of the communists for support and uh, at that time itself there was a uh, you know india had a communist like hrd minister and number of other influences of that type came in in the late 60s and that i would say that's where they started entrenching themselves they sort of took control of the the left wing sort of uh, thought process took control of institutions took control of universities starting in the late 60s early 70s and that kind of persisted for several decades obviously and then obviously now if anyone says that you know there is something wrong with it there is immediately the label that you know fascist and this that this that and they shut it, they shut down even criticism or any kind of assessment of what they have actually done in the last 30 40 years uh, there there's a follow up uh, on that which says that many say jnu is the center of the leftist uh, ideology in india you have something to say about that yeah, i i mean that is probably true in terms of a concentrated place of writers academics intellectuals who subscribe to that view and what i would simply add to that is it requires taxpayer rupees for that kind of ecosystem to be sustained whereas if you look i mean again what our book is a very small kind of contribution in the larger scheme of things but it, it is probably not a coincidence that this kind of book has come from people who are in the private sector uh, who do not depend on the government dole and all the so called trolls of the so called right wing online they are all people working in the private sector taking some time out on weekdays or weekends and arguing their point of view it's an organic movement it does not require any government taxpayer support because it does have more organic support and therefore i think 
uh, it is not a surprise that JNU, with all its subsidized land and subsidized fees and scholarships and uh, stipends, is the is the center of that. Hello, uh, thank you so much for giving the opportunity to speak. I'm joining you from Arunachal Pradesh, which is only uh, like you know, and three hours from the Tibetan border, and the Chinese troops are just uh, around the corner here. So uh, I won't waste much time, but I've been following. Uh, Sangam, from the time you've been established, like you keep on changing the names, region, and then you something else. But uh, I have some concerns, and uh, I don't know whether that will be based on questions. But um, see, uh, first of all, whatever you've spoken is amazing, and I'll definitely, you know, would like your like to buy your book. Not only that, I'm also going to present your book to my friends on their special occasions. But unfortunately. Uh, nobody delivers here. Recently, you know that uh, Flipkart actually said Nagaland was a separate country. I hope you people came to know about that. So this is the kind of ignorance uh, people have about the Northeast region. Many of them don't even know about Arunachal Pradesh, and uh, this needs to be addressed. We've tried our best to bridge the gap, and uh, certainly the academics have failed in this regard. Uh, whenever we go, go out. Uh, uh, nobody has any idea of where we came from. Arunachal Pradesh, Tawang, nobody knows. And it is such an important place for India. Thanks to the Chinese meddling of our borders that the people now know about Tawang and Arunachal Pradesh. So um, I'll just uh, say a few things. I don't know whether this is the right forum also. But uh, you talked about uh, how judges make a mockery of the uh, judgments they pass, like the wine shop and that stuff. I want to illustrate one fact that uh, a few years ago, there was a, some kind of a stuff that came out that uh, if you needed to have a valid SIM connection, you had to submit your Aadhaar details. Now, people like me and you must have stood in line in Vodafone or Airtel to submit our paperwork and get it done. And uh, it was really a, you know, a harrowing job. We did it, but we did it. But there was, there was a section of our society that was making fun of all this and was saying, no, we will not submit the documents. Our identities will be revealed to the government. I don't want to talk about that community, but uh, they were the ones who were uh, going around doing the propaganda that this this is useless and we will not do this. We will not do this. But we had faith in the judiciary and the government, and that's the reason we stood in the line. We submitted all our personal documents. We had to wait for hours to get our fingerprint registered to for a lousy mobile number, but we did it. And ultimately, what happened is that the Judges came out with the order that, you know, you don't need to uh, submit your other details for your cell phone connection and blah, blah, blah. So the naysayers won. So this is this is something that needs to stop. Whether it is the wine shop, whether it is submitting the SIM or anything, this needs to stop. So if you can... I'll take the comment. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. First of all, I fully agree that uh, the northeastern seven states have been neglected in popular discourse. And you are very right that only recently and partially because of the Chinese Communist Party's incursions have we actually learned more about areas like Tawang, as you mentioned, uh, which is part of Arunachal. Many people don't even know about the local religions, which are not necessarily Christian or uh, Muslim, but they are part of the broader dharmic framework, even though they don't go by the word Hinduism. There's a religion that starts with D. I'm forgetting the uh, major religion in Arunachal that way. Um, and so we need to learn much more and we need to be very, very sensitive. There is a lot of crass racism also that happens. And I don't need to obviously tell you that. And I think all of that has reduced, but more awareness is needed. In terms of 
the judiciary of course rajiv and i fully agree with you rajiv very beautifully explained how they change their views every 4 or 5 months i think it partially depends on which side of the bed they got out that morning and uh, you know what happened in their family lives because there is no rhyme or reason and uh, you know they would they, even not, just to expand on your example they would have uh, ekyc allowed for some fintech companies through aadhar and then they suddenly block it and then they said again allowed again you know i'm not saying it's entirely the judiciary's fault some of the things the government could have also passed as a bill which is separate from a finance bill and not as an ordinance so it is a bit more complex and nuanced than that and i don't want to completely put it on the judiciary but having said that the judiciary definitely is very 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 uh, kind of uh, you know just wakes up and does things on its whim and that needs to change i fully agree do you want to add something rajiv or so you know even i think defining the ambit of what courts can and can't do i mean just entertaining any pil you know someone files a pil and they are uh, having a hearing i mean in that i think some boundaries should be decided and followed because not everything is up for judicial sort of scrutiny uh, some some decisions executive decisions is the prerogative of the government uh, uh, so i think those boundaries should be set so the name of the religion that i was mentioning was doni polo d o n y i p o l o doni polo and the reason why that is important is there a lot of these religions which are not quote unquote hindu but are part of the dharmic framework and it is that shows the civilizational uh, heritage of india which is fundamentally a lot of what other people would call pagan or polytheistic faiths and uh, the rss is doing good job to make sure that what happens is you still need to give them in a modern world uh, kind of a more supra identity and umbrella identity because if you if you don't they are the first targets of people who want to convert them whether it is in arunachal pradesh it is in jharkhand it is in tribal parts of madhya pradesh odisha and other parts of northeast so it is it is very important and beautiful for the rest of indians especially quote unquote mainstream hindus to learn about you know faiths like donio polo and to kind of preserve that uh preserve that diversity of religion in a broader framework so i just wanted to mention that beautiful faith first of all thank you for the great talk uh, uh rajiv and harsh and thank you members of the sangam team and all the questioners thanks for your time i'll uh, i have a few questions so if you take uh, sorry go through them one by one if you think i'm taking too long please feel free to continue to the next question so first question uh so here's what i've noticed uh, that in india we still suffer from this uh you know slavish mentality people do not respect the government they do not think the government works for them and they do not respect it and they aim to game the system right and they feel proud and they brag about it you know secondly the government doesn't care about the people right the aim of the babu is to just you know, get his job done he has nothing his salary has nothing to do with how his you know customers or you know people in the district are treated right this essentially no respect from the government to the people and the people to the government it's almost as if they feel like they're still serving an oppressive you know regime as if they were being served for past thousand years right so how do we recover from this it seems like a never ending cycle when no one cares about anyone and the country goes to you know so hey what i'll do is i'll quickly take a stab at it and then you can ask the second question before we forget the next question and then i think rajiv already kind of answered the question that he asked in a beautiful way when he was covering chapter 5 but i'll wait, i'll be very quick you're absolutely right the problem in india is that a lack of ownership or a sense of ownership of the state people do not feel or at least till recently it's probably changing they do not feel it is their state the way you absolutely feel in many western countries 
So I sense what you are coming from is absolutely right, and it is vice versa, which is why the chapter five is called decolonizing the Indian state, right? That's the name of the chapter, and we give a, not just administrative reform, judicial reform, police reform, but I think what will make a very massive difference, and that only we briefly cover in the book because of lack of space, is local administrative reform. And what I mean by that is, if I am living in South Calcutta right now, and there is a road that is blocked or there is some problem, it's very difficult for me to understand who to call. There is no one strong executive mayor of a large city, and even if it is, it's a very large city. Uh, whereas, you know, what happens if you're living in a U.S. suburb, uh, you have a school, you know, there is a, there's a clear sense of accountability. You pay local taxes. You, there is somebody who's responsible for you. Call somebody. It's not a maibap relationship. And so urban local governance needs to improve. On the rural side, it's even worse because, you know, it, might, it was understandable just after independence, after, as you said, a thousand years of colonization, we kind of wanted to remove rural taxes. That's fine. But now there are no rural taxes. And therefore, all the schemes come from the top. And because if I'm a farmer, if I'm a villager or non-farmer in a rural area, I'm not paying any taxes. I feel that se jo hai, And therefore, I don't worry that much on average, about corruption. You know, in, in economics, political economy is called the flypaper effect. The flypaper effect basically means that when something comes from the top and it flies away, you don't care that much about it. Uh, so we need local sources of revenue, property taxes, some agricultural taxes, Rajiv and I have written over time, which I think will happen. That's the part of the snowball of the Indian political economy. So that I've worked in villages and I've, I've gone to what are, you know, the technically IAS officer, district magistrates, but locally and colloquially, we call them collectors. Colloquially, we call them collectors. And the collectors from the British Raj era when they were collecting taxes. Now they're no longer collecting taxes, they're putting out schemes. And I've seen people go and do like literally something very simple, nothing complex. And what is missing in India is the panchayat has no local revenue, tax raising power. The BDO, the local block development officer, has no real power. So it's all top down, it's not bottom up. And, you know, despite the, the Panchayati Raj and the two amendments that happened uh, towards the end of the Rajiv Gandhi government, this this still has still has to be done. No, just uh, I, I will just say that there is a real misalignment of incentives. There is a, a real sort of disconnect. Uh, frankly, the officialdom uh, of this country lives in its own bubble. You know, they are kind of disconnected from the uh, impact of their own actions. They are disconnected from the broader economy. They are dis disconnected from even, you know, any kind of uh, consequence for the uh, wrong decisions or bad decisions decisions they may take. Uh, you know, the, so if, if you basically are a judge and you decide that this mine should be shut down for some reason and thousands of jobs are lost in Tamil Nadu and India becomes a copper importer, uh, you know, you just made a pronouncement and you walked away. Well, a lot of people lost their livelihoods. Uh, shareholders lost out on, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, their companies making money. All kinds of downstream effects happened, but for the judge, nothing changed. And uh, the legality or illegality of it is also dubious. You know, it's not always cut and dry. Uh, but but uh, this kind of power to just say something and that happens. And then the consequence of that is hardly visited upon on the person who made the pronouncement, uh, I think I think some moderation there would probably be a good idea. Akhan, very quickly, a second question. So, you see, for me, uh, you know, the government is an organization, a very inefficient one, a very bad one, but it is an organization at the end of the day. 
which should ideally aim to become more efficient, right? Now, I've worked at a very big and successful tech company and the way they operate is, is I would say very scientific, right? Their aim is to collect data, you know, make, poli- you know, hypothesize policies, test and implement policy in stages and evaluate and update performance. This is because their profits rely directly on the success of this, right? This is not the case with government. These people do not care about, you know, who's being affected. In fact, it seems like policies are being made for political, you know, and personal gain. So I'll, I'll, I'll quickly add, I got your point. I'll quickly say that, of course, that's true. But first of all, for government all over the world, right? I mean, so in economics, it's called public choice theory. Public choice theory is people, bureaucrats are maximizing their own bureaucratic empires. They are not necessarily concerned about efficiency. Having said that, in the Indian case, it's worse than obviously that of developed countries. For example, in Singapore, bureaucrats and ministers could get a million dollar salaries and they could have incentives. Even if you don't have million dollar salaries in India, uh, Rajiv and I, we do write directly and indirectly. For example, why not have a bonus for the bureaucrats, which part of it is linked to the GDP growth of the average GDP growth of the last three years or last two years, for example. Some skin in the game that could at least make them think that is my decision harming the country's economy and society more broadly, or is it helping it as opposed to literally looking about their own job? more parallel and lateral entry, more firing of people who are not good enough. And to this government's credit, they're tying all of this. It is a steel frame, which is rusting at its core. It takes time. It's a massive ship. If you rotate it too fast, it will lead to an accident. Uh, but I'm at least I'm glad to see that those steps are happening. You had touched upon it earlier. Like uh, you said that India has an indigenous civilization and uh, uh, other non-indigenous uh, civilizations. Now, there are those who would say that uh, by the same rationale, uh, Kashmir and Pakistan uh, have a civilization that is uh, more in sync with each other. So, how do we counter that? So, another big thing is uh, whether uh, do you think uh, the caste fault lines would uh, go away in the next 15 to 20 years? So, Ashwin, both are excellent questions. On the first question, I think before you joined, we had spoken specifically on Kashmir itself. Uh, I had read out a section from the book called Kashmir, Pakistan and Karl Popper, but I'll very quickly add to that. Uh, and on the on the caste fault lines, I do think in the next 20, 30 years, they will go away. But before I speak on Kashmir, I want Rajiv to make some comment. No, actually on, on Kashmir, I think, you know, we made the case, uh, uh, you know, India, so Indian civilization. So when we say fundamentalism, you know, let's talk about the fundamentals. What are the fundamentals of, if you want to call India a Hindu nation, what are the fundamentals of of Hindutva or a Hindu nation? Well, it is inclusivity. It is mutual respect. It is equal treatment of all, right? Which is unlike, uh, let's say, an Islamic Republic like Pakistan. If you are a if you are a non-Islamic uh, uh, person in an Islamic Republic, then you are a uh, def- by definition you are a second-class citizen, and that is reflected in their laws. That is the reality. Whereas in India, what everybody is asking for is equal treatment before the law. Uh, even even what our uh, ethos and our plural sort of uh, way of uh, thinking uh, is about is that it is it, it doesn't differentiate or doesn't uh, I mean it's not that there are not flaws in it today but is it anybody's case that those flaws should be corrected like is anybody saying that we want to persist with this I don't think so I mean we want to move to a place where we want equality for all so I think that fundamental difference is there and uh, that should be recognized when we try to equate the two civilizations. And more very more uh, quickly, Ashwin, um, so I'll quickly add to Rajiv. 
uh, Rajiv's point. See, uh, partition, in my view, is that if you want to keep India democratic and substantially keep its dharmic character, nobody I know that of wants to uh, undo partition today because that will lead to 350 million more Muslim subcontinental citizens. Right? I mean, people might be for Akhand Bharat in a larger abstract sense in a future where people voluntarily want to join the dharmic kind of worldview. Then it's a different, then it's a, then it's a very happy news. It's a different news. So right now, they don't want to. So, so partition is a reality and it's an acknowledgement of a millennium and a quarter of Islamic presence in the subcontinent. Fine. So the partition has happened. Now the question is, then the question is, where do the boundaries lie? So then if people who do not right now uh, who want to suppress Shia Muslims, who want to suppress Muslim feminists, who want to suppress Sikhs, Hindus, Buddhists in what is what was Jammu and Kashmir and are now two union territories, they are free to go to Gilgit, Balkistan, Pakistan occupied Kashmir, what, what they call Azad Kashmir, and they are free to follow the policies they want to. You know, there have been there have been transfers of population, not complete, but for example, in Bengal and even more so in what was undivided Punjab. So we are, I, as far as I know, I'm not, we are not trying to deliberately stop people from living under Pakistani Sharia laws. So the division is final. There is going to be no more religion based division of the subcontinent. They already, now, of course, they claim all of Kashmir or the Jammu Kashmir. We also claim uh, Gilgit, Baltistan and what they call Azad Kashmir, the Muzaffarabad area. It, we might have a deal at some point. We do claim our parliament fully claims that area. But uh, this, the partition as of now is uh, on the ground, it is final. The, so I don't see how in any way we are wrong because the, we are not treating people who are within that system any unfairly because if they are going to any other part of India, occasionally there is some anger against some Kashmiri students in some hostels. But many of them are in Bollywood, many of them are in business, many of them are universities across the country. They have the same protections. In fact, as we have mentioned, as Rahul has mentioned, because of the you know soft appetite against the Hindu majority in some cases, the case can be argued that even in the rest of India, uh, in some educational and religious institutional sense, they have more privileges than the Hindu majority. Although there are some exceptions for linguistic Hindu minorities in some states. So my my point, we write about Karl Popper, we write about this, we say, we take the analogy of Ireland. We say that, for example, if at least Pakistan were to go through enlightenment either word liberalism or dharma and where not just other non-Muslims, but even Shias or Ahmadis and other people could actually live equally, then at least, and then overwhelmingly people don't want to be with India, then at least there is some case to think about. But even then, what about all the non-Muslims? You know, if it, you know, it's only the Kashmir Valley, which is a Muslim majority. What about Jammu? What about Ladakh? So, and then if that is the case, so what about uh, Muslim majority area of Kerala on the coast? Would you allow that to be partitioned 20 years from now? And if so, if so, I'm not saying if so, then how does the Hindu majority look at the remaining Muslim minority in the rest of the country as future secessionists? So there are, there are real issues uh, in, in terms of even in a humane way, but also in a strategic way.